Hi guys, it's Ariana. Thanks so much for listening to One Story. One Story is a conversational series that aims to unite our community by inviting those around us to share their unique story. Through differences and similarities in our stories, we hope to illustrate that each person has an equally valid and meaningful story to share and foster an environment of hope, open-mindedness, and positivity. In part 13, you'll hear from Chris. After six years of longing to belong, Chris Ansberry started using. Eight years later, his parents found out, which not only placed a significant strain on his family, but led to a year in and out of various rehabilitation facilities. Three months after his uncle introduced him to God, he got clean, went to college, got married, and ultimately earned a PhD. In part 13, Chris will speak on his past, how he came to know God, and his journey in figuring out belonging. Thanks for listening. Okay, hi guys. Um, thanks for coming, and certainly thank you to you, Chris, which let's just clarify why I'm calling you Chris, and I'm not just being blatantly disrespectful to you and your PhD. Do you want to explain how that like came to be? When I visited you. I just thought for, for a context like this, uh, first name basis is quite right, especially from eight years in the UK, where if you were called doctor, they were having a go at you. Um, There's a bit of banter there. Uh, I taught in a seminary, which Dr. Bune knows very well, uh, that was very horizontal in terms of relationships. Students were tended to be older, more mature. Um, they would call you by your first name. So that if you were ever called doctor, that means something was not quite yeah. right. So. That's so interesting compared to what we have here because like here it's considered extremely disrespectful to not call your professor doctor or professor, but different cultures. Um, okay, so the first question I ask everybody is I have a playlist and every guest that I have on, I need a song for that playlist. So what is one song that you think that we can't not know about? Can I pick two? Totally. So it depends on my mood. Okay. Um, I really appreciate uh, John Bellion's song, um, Human. Okay. When I'm not feeling, well, when I need to feel like I'm a human. Yeah. Uh, and then on the other end, I like Need to Breathe's Child Again. Okay. Human and Child Again. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mental note. Okay. So um, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, family, interests. Yeah, so Hobbies. I am the husband of Carolyn Love for that. almost 18 years now. Wow. I am the father of Angela, Benjamin, Olivia, and Adeline. Uh, I am the son of Vicky and Jim, and I'm the brother of Jim, Stephen, and Caroline. I'm from the Cleveland area, grew up there. Cleveland. Do you go visit often? Or not really? Now that we're back in the, yeah. in the U.S., much more often than we used to. So when we were in the U.K., we would visit twice a year over Christmas and the New Year, and then always over the summers. But now that we're back, we tend to visit family every month at least. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you grew up in Cleveland. Uh, what was that like? And what were middle school and high school like for you? Cleveland's a lovely place. I don't know if you know about it, but it's a great place. Um, grew up on the east side in the suburbs there. Lovely family, warm family. Uh, can't say enough about my parents. Uh, they love me to the end. They <laughs> had quite a long road with me. Um, 
they gave everything in many respects for me. And I, I greatly appreciate that, especially now as a dad. They, um, they took me to church. They uh, enabled me to participate in every and every sport I could participate in. Um, we had a lovely and warm family life. And in every respect, uh, I couldn't have wished for anything better. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I met you for the first time, you talked about this idea of longing to belong. Yeah. Um, could you elaborate on what that is for a bit? Um, because I think it's something that we all struggle with to some degree. Um, so why do you think belonging is so important? Man. I don't think I realized it at that point, but there was, that, there was always that sense of belonging. Like, where do I fit? Yeah. Where do I belong? And, man, you just don't know who you are on your own. Like, none of us know who we are on our own. You only ever know who you are in relationship with other people. I've learned that, I mean, outside of trying to figure it out when I was a teenager, through college, through today, I learned that almost every day in the face of my wife, where it's a, I still don't really know who I am. My wife knows me better than I know myself. And there's, there's that sense of, look, in the garden, it was not good for the man to be alone. Uh, we, we are never meant to do be alone. Do you mean alone. the garden in the Bible? I do. Okay. Uh, you're never meant to be alone. You only ever know who you are in relationship with other people and ultimately before the face of God. And I was wrestling with that, like, where do I belong? To whom do I belong? Where do I fit? And so, you know, growing up in Cleveland, I was good at sports, and that was fine. Um, I went through middle school, I went through high school, I was great at soccer, I was great at baseball. It just, I never really clicked with people there. That wasn't my sense of belonging. I was looking for that to be my sense of belonging. I felt like because of a family heritage I had, my uncles playing Major League Baseball, that was sort of my sweet spot. People would accept me because of that. They didn't. Where do I fit? And we were just talking earlier. Yeah. I, my kids are figuring that out now. Where having been in the UK, at least the oldest, well, the oldest two, although being born in the States, with my four kids, in effect, all that they've known is life in the UK. Now that they're in Western Pennsylvania, I see that they're figuring this out. Where do I belong? To whom do I belong? Where do I fit? What does that look like? Because in large part, your identity is bound up in to whom you belong. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that longing to belong, is that what ultimately led you to start using? Yeah, I think so, in large part. I, I didn't find a place with my sort of athletic friends. I, I was looking for somewhere to belong. I ended up falling in with a crowd where belonging meant using, and that's what I ended up doing. And I could never see, I, I never really did see that it was a pseudo sense of belonging, but that became the glue, that became the centerpiece, that became 
the common bond that we all have. Yeah. Um, what was so attractive about the lies that that lifestyle was feeding you? Or, or why did you seem like, or, or why did using seem like the antidote to your desire to belong? Yeah, I guess I didn't realize that it was a lie. I, I, I didn't know that it was a lie. It was just, okay, uh, I want to belong to something. And that became a means of belonging to something. Um, so it never, th it never felt fraudulent. It never felt fake to me. Um, man, what? there's this false bond that held me together with a group of people that would, in the end, or repeatedly, shame me or undermine me. And there was this weird sense in which, at the end of the day, it didn't matter. Because there was this false, common bond that held it all together. But I could never see it. It didn't matter to me. Yeah. Um, what broke the cycle of using and abusing for you? <laughs> and that's rather a large question. But that's, a, that's a long story. I mean, I never wanted to stop. I never wanted to stop. So, you know, this, this began in my early high school years. I went off to college. Uh, after my first year, I was effectively kicked out. And I told my parents that I just didn't want to go back. Um, I told them I was going to community college, although I wasn't. I was just doing my thing with my, friend, with my friends. And ultimately, it ended up that they found out in a roundabout way what was going on. And in large part, my mother, like, bless my Italian mother, you know, she, she just loved me. She, she enabled me in a lot of ways, but she just wanted the best for me and thought the best of me and wanted to do the best for me. But it wasn't the best for me. Um, and so when I was ultimately found out my dad didn't look at me or talk to me for a month. Uh, they ended up just sort of cycling me through the rehabilitation centers where they could never sit down with counselors to figure out what was actually going on because I was over 18, so I was an adult. And so I just fed these counselors the story around. It wasn't that serious. It's not that really that big of a deal. Um, it hasn't been going on that long which meant I was ultimately at home on my own, doing my own thing with my friends while everyone else was at work at school. Um, and that then culminated, when my parents realized after a few months, look, this, nothing, nothing's happening here. Um, my uncle, who was coaching in Major League Baseball at that point, was in town, and he is Christian, and he sat down with me, and he opened the Bible with me, 
genuinely the first time that I've opened a Bible in my entire life. So I'd grown up in the Catholic Church, was catechized in the Catholic Church, confirmed in the Catholic Church. Just really didn't mean anything. You know, there was just no effect on my life, um, my family's life, and I just thought, why does this matter, you know? And my uncle sat down with me, opened the Bible with me, Sermon on the Mount, read through Matthew 5 to 7, um, and then he suggested to my parents that I be sent to a particular rehabilitation center which was extremely charismatic and was sort of a program where most people, well, the vast majority of people were court ordered there. So rather than going to prison by virtue of drug use, they were put in this program. I went there and I thought, you know, growing up in a sort of liturgical Catholic tradition, when people are running around and sort of speaking in tongues, you know, which is, that's fine, that is what it is. I just thought, these people have lost their mind and they think that I have issues. They clearly have issues. Um, that culminated in, after a few weeks, I went AWOL, called my friend, was like, come pick me up. Um, I was not allowed to have contact for a long period of time with my parents, at least three months. Um, was that mandated by the... Mandated by the place. Okay. So when I went back to collect my stuff, um, they called up my parents and said, look, he's going to leave. And my dad was like, we don't want you. Go live on the street. He's on the other line with my friend saying, don't pick him up. And I'm thinking, well, okay, what do I do? And at that point, I was so, I was so self-centered. I was so deceptive that I just thought, you know, okay, I'll just, I'll drag this out for the next couple weeks, month, maybe by Thanksgiving, they'll let me come home. My punishment for having gone AWOL was I literally had to transcribe the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And again, with the exception of my uncle, I've really never opened the Bible before in my life. So I started on that task, and halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, I was just transformed. I mean... By virtue of what I had learned in church, those sort of facts that meant absolutely nothing to me, and then engaging in scripture, the Lord by his spirit just transformed me, and uh, I became a Christian. And at that point, things dramatically changed, not only my desires, my form of life, but I went through this program for another eight months before then I went off and then lived with my uncle, who had first visited me. Um, I lived with him for about six months. We went out to Australia. He was coaching a winter ball team out there. Um, while I was out there, uh, the Major League Baseball player that had funded this winter league had said, we want to pay for your college education. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to college, go back to school. Didn't know where to go. Uh, at that point, figured out, oh, wow, there's Christian colleges. I never knew that Christian colleges existed. Um, great, I'm gonna go to a Christian college. And my uncle's like, you go to Moody, or you go to this place called the Master's College out in Southern California. I was like, great. I looked at Moody's application and I couldn't fill it out because I didn't have a pastor. I didn't have any Christian friends. So no one could fill out my references. Like, what do I do? So I applied to the master's college in Southern California. A lot of look, it's in California, it can't be that bad, right? Um, and they accepted me. So I went out there, 
and that was another struggle in terms of just belonging where it was just a foreign world yeah I mean it was bizarre yeah yeah so really quickly before we move on to California I just wonder was there ever like an internal switch or did something break within you that was like nope I'm done with this way of life I'm done using um and then was it hard to stick with that choice or or not really there no I mean this is all of God's grace where when he when he met me when I met him when I was transformed I developed immediately a disgust for what I had done. There was a sense of I had become so, so self-centered that I had no idea of what was going on around me. And I began to see the carnage that I had left in my wake. And there was significant carnage that I had left in my wake. Um, my My siblings were ashamed of me. I, I, we don't really live in an honor-shame culture here. I mean, if you study the Old Testament and Scripture, you get the sense of honor-shame. I mean, in Asian cultures, you get a sense of honor-shame. But I, I just I never got a sense of that. And after the Lord delivered me, I, I saw clearly, very clearly, how much I had shamed my family, how much I effectively put my parents on the brink of divorce because my mom was doing everything in the world to cover for me and to do whatever she thought was best in her way. And my dad wanted nothing to do with it. Um, it, it was hard. I mean, and seeing that, in clarity for the first time, not only gave me a sense of God's grace of delivering from not wanting to go back, but also this healthy sense of disgust at what I had done, which never gave way to me ever wanting to do it again. But having said that, there was that sense of, look, I was in this artificial context of a rehab program where I was sheltered from any and every desire to go out and do that again. And then I find myself with my uncle, where again, in a great way, I was sheltered from any and every desire to go out and do it again. And then I found myself in a weird Christian college where I was sheltered once again in this bubble from ever going out to do it again. Yeah. Um. So you went to undergrad, like you said, in California. Mm -hmm. uh, what was that like? Or what, what was it like to have the juxtaposition of being in a Christian artificial, as you called it, um, bubble, versus being surrounded by places like LA or Santa Monica? It was actually kind of great. Yeah? In that I did not know how to fit in at school. I mean, again, having experienced life a bit, and then finding myself in a dorm room with an 18-year-old kid who stayed up most of the night playing video games or like hanging out. I was like, I, like I'm here to do business. Yeah. You know, I, and 
I just didn't know how to fit in. Uh, like, I was the guy who was known for walking around campus with his sunglasses on and his head down or literally reading a book as I w walked from one class to another. Because I just thought, I don't know how to relate to these people. I don't understand them. And so having places like LA or Santa Monica around was, was a great release in terms of like, okay, I can actually go out somewhere. I can burst this bubble, in a sense, and go somewhere where there are normal people and relax and hang out. And the, and the Lord's kindness there was, you know, after about a month, <laughs> there was a small group of guys who, like me, were older and, like me, had experienced life and like me, had taken some time off and gone back to school and had kind of known the subculture ropes and found me and kind of drew me in and then helped me negotiate sort of weird bubble culture at college alongside of life in general. Do you still talk to those people? No, oh, I do. All okay. of them, yeah. Um, so do you think that being in an, quote, artificial environment in undergrad aided your efforts to stay clean at all? I or, do. Yeah. No, I do. I think in the same way that, um, you know, this program that I went to in which I was transformed, my uncle, um, that undergrad did do that. But I will say, you know, these guys that I hung out with, uh, many of whom had similar sorts of struggles that I did, they didn't have the same advantage that I, I had in terms of being in an artificial context that protected them from wanting to venture back out again, potentially. They were living in the thick of it, you know, in the world and combating temptation and desire along the way in their own ways with the Lord's help. But it, I learned very quickly that it was much more difficult for them than it was for me because of that artificial context in which the Lord had placed me. Yeah. Um. When we met, we talked about this idea of having an addictive personality. Mm -hmm. I have one, you have one, um, and yet you told me that since you sort of came to God or became a Christian, you've had zero desire to use. Um, and I think that sort of shocked me because when I've listened to others that have struggled with addiction, I hear a lot, um, they'll always, like, quote, be an alcoholic, for example. They're just a recovered one. Sure. Um, and that even though they are recovered... That doesn't mean it still isn't hard for them. Mm -hmm. um, but you haven't had that experience, from what I can tell? Um, I haven't. Not, no, not with hard drugs, um, which is my issue. So, by God's grace, that hasn't been my predicament. But again, having close friends that have struggled with substance abuse, that it's been more of a struggle, and I can understand that. Um, It is genuinely a gift of God's grace that I don't struggle with that, but I will say, and I do say, and my wife will say, that even though I don't struggle with using hard drugs, that addictive personality in me lives on. I mean, I, 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 I talked to you about this. I have a really good friend, a really good friend from college, who now happens to be effectively my brother-in-law, and we chat every week. Um, we are very similar. Uh, and the, the running joke is like, where do we direct our, our addictive personality? 
it's still there. Yeah. It isn't toward um, abusing hard drugs, but it is toward anything else. So it's like, did you get up at five o'clock in the morning and work out eight days a week this week? Mm. You know, or did you, you know, fill in the blank? Yeah. You know, it, it is, you, I direct it towards something else. And I'm, I'm very aware of that from exercising to work to there's a lot of things that I realize I can just direct my attention, my full attention to something else. And that is a mirror image of the way in which I abuse substances. Um, it's just part and parcel of a sense of my personality. And I've, I've come to acknowledge that that's who I am. It's just a realization of, okay, what is healthy? What is not? And allowing others to let me know what is healthy yeah. and what is not. Um, so in your case, when you came to know God, you stopped using and never had another desire. But we both agreed that it's important that we highlight that coming to God is not a solution. No. It's just happened to work out that way in your case. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have plenty of acquaintances now that were once friends, yeah. um, but unfortunately we're not that close anymore. Uh, and yet, there's that, there's that reality there of, the, look, the Lord works in mysterious ways, and he works in different ways, in different people, for his own purposes. I don't pretend to know what those purposes are, or why he works in certain ways, but no, it's, it's not a one-stop shop sort of a thing where it's all sorted. Uh, life's much messier than that. And that's proven to be the case. Not, maybe it hasn't proven to be the case in this instance in my experience, but it's certainly proven to be the case in those that I know. Yeah. Um, I want to know how to be a good friend to someone who is struggling with substance abuse. Or an addiction, we can just leave No, that. sure. Um, how do you be a good friend? You be fiercely loyal. Be fiercely loyal to a friend that struggles with any form of addiction or substance abuse. Be faithfully available to them. Always available. And being fiercely loyal and faithfully available, be prepared to be hurt a lot. Um, be prepared to be burned in so many different ways. I mean, be prepared to, you know, have your friend steal from you, lie to you, you know, manipulate you, whatever it might be. That's what they're gonna do, that, that's what they know. That's what they're trying to do to cope and do what they wanna do because they're so self-centered. So be fiercely loyal, be faithfully available, but be prepared to be hurt. And if you're, if you're ready for that, that's how you can be a good friend. Um, if you could go back in time and talk to the version of yourself that was struggling with addiction? I know, I, I, another big question, but um, what would you tell him? 
That's a great question. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know that I would tell him anything because I don't, I, I don't think that that would have any sort of meaningful effect. I think I would ask him questions. I think if I was, again, going back to what I just mentioned, if I was to ask him anything, it would be, huh, why, why are you so self-consumed? Like, why do you love yourself so much? Why do you think that you're so great that you should love yourself that much? I think anything to sort of snap someone out of the cycle of not being able to see outside of themselves and their own desires and their own wants and their own cravings. Um, that's, that's what I would try to do. Yeah. Um, this is my last question for Chris. It feels so weird not calling Dr. Ainsbury, but it's okay. Um, if there's one message or lesson that you want us to, to walk away with today, what would it be and why? Let me add a qualifier here, which is I am, what, seven months into Grove City, if that. Uh, this is quite a different place from where I went to college. Um, it's, a, it's a great place. Um, maybe one can be lulled into the sense that we're all on the same page. We all sort of generally come from the same place. And the likelihood is we don't. We don't. And so just don't, don't assume that you all come from whatever sort of family or whatever sort of background or whatever sort of belief system or whatever it might be. Be genuinely open to understanding other people. Uh, if my pushback at where I went to school was, wow, I feel like trapped in this little bubble. Um, burst the bubble. Don't feel like you're locked into some place and everyone lives within that same place. But rather be open to the surprise that someone might come from a different sort of perspective or a different sort of background. I think that, that would be yeah. the encouragement. Um, do any of you have any questions for Chris? Yeah, Drew. Um, did you have any sense of uh, that using was wrong before you became Christian? Um, talk to me about wrong. Because I think, like, to, to, let, me, let me put it in, in, this, in these terms. <clears throat> Did I know that it was wrong? Yeah, in a sense. Um, but could I handle it? Insofar as, like, could I do well at school? And could I relate well to people and my teachers? Could I put on, you know, a good face and sort of make everyone else think, yeah, all is well there, no, no big deal, no problem there? I, I thought that I could negotiate that pretty well. And I, I could for quite a long time until things unraveled. I guess a better, a better way to put it is, um, did you feel like any conviction about it? Or did you just know it was wrong because that's what it said? 
Yeah, I think the latter. I, I, I didn't really have any conviction whatsoever about it. Um, yeah, my moral compass was, was off, big time. So then when you said you went to that place and uh, you were reading through the New Testament, yeah. so was it almost like over that, over that period of time that you started reading, all of a sudden it just like, like God kind of hit you over the head with it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it wasn't like a moment in time where it was like smack over the head, totally transformed. But there was a sense of like, oh man, I don't say this anymore. Or I don't desire that anymore. Or I think differently about that. It, you know, it just became very sort of apparent to me that my manner of life, my manner of talking, my desires, you know, the, the sense honestly at that point in that place was, all right, how much longer do I got here? How much longer do I have to stick this out before I can legitimately call my parents and be like, all's well, look, I did this for, you know, how many, however long you wanted me to do it, let me come home. I didn't want to stop. And all of those things, desires, modes of thinking, modes of speaking, were just changed transformed, and I legitimately cannot chalk it up to anything else. Yeah. Um, I have, I, I guess I have two questions. Just one is a simple curiosity, like what do you think was the most impactful in reading through the Gospels, like coming from such a high liturgical church, and then having such a close and personal encounter with the Gospel? Do you, I just like, do you remember what, like, hit you the most in that time? Yeah, that's a great question, Savannah. Again, if I was to try to put my finger on it, I think it would be a realization for the first time of who I really was. Uh, you know, I had known, like, okay, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's come to save you from your sins. I had repeated that in incalculable ways, in different forms of liturgy. I had genuinely believed that intellectually and cognitively. Um, but I never knew what that meant for who I was. Like, why did, why did that even matter to me? And maybe it was because, you know... I, I'd grown up in a household where, bless my dad, he was a self-made man. You know, it was like, I, he was the oldest of nine and had gone off to school and had paid his way and had earned his way through life and was a hard worker. And at my 12th birthday, got me a job. That was my birthday present. You know, it was like, this is what you do. You know, you work hard. That's how you make it. And it was, maybe it was that sense of just like, I, why, do I, why do I need this? I, I don't understand why I need this. And even in the depth of my using, it was like, I, I don't know why I need this. I thought that I was okay. And it, it was, I think it was that realization, Savannah, where it was, uh, okay, I know this stuff about the gospel, and I know this stuff about Jesus in the liturgical tradition in which I had grown up in, in the high church tradition I had grown up in. But for the first time in reading through the gospel, I genuinely came to an understanding of, oh crap, 
this is who I am. And it was that clarity of this is who I am that then in turn allowed me to see the good news of the gospel. Just, I, I don't even know if this is a question, but just kind of the parallel of you in one part of your life going through a year of college and then not coming back, and now you've just gone on to such like academic <laughs> success and legacy, um, and just like I guess as you reflect on that, um, just those two experiences with academics and studying, like, what's your biggest takeaway? That's a great question. That's a really I, good question. That's a great question. I, man, Savannah, honestly, I would have never mapped out this terrain. Uh, I, you know, I went back to school. You know, I went to undergrad, went back to undergrad in California. I had no idea what I, what I wanted to do. Genuinely no idea. I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I don't know, what do I do? And there was a language requirement, as you have. Except this language requirement is you had to take Greek. I could, I was, tr because I transferred in, I tried to get into uh, the summer class. Because I was like, how am I going to, how am I going to fit this, this in? And one of the guys that I had met yeah. um, was like, dude, you can do this. Here's the textbook. Just like go after it. And if you need help, I'll help you. I was like, all right. I was so naive. I was like, great, I'll just do this. And it just clicked. Like, it worked for me. I enjoyed it. I loved it. Um, tested out. That was my undergrad. My undergraduate was ancient languages. I was like, great. I did that. I was like, great. What do I do now? Got married. Like, what do I do? Um, <laughs> one of my professors that encouraged me, you go to grad school. I was like, great, I'll go to grad school. So I'm newly married. I go to grad school. Carolyn, my lovely wife, is working um, to pay for our rent and to put food on the table. And I'm working to pay for tuition and to go to school. And uh, I do my MA in exegesis at Wheaton. And I worked for the first year in um, painting. I was doing redecorating for houses. And then in the second year, I got a job um, working for a financial advisor. And so at that point, the financial advisor said, hey, just come on, work for me. We'd love to have you. Um, and I thought that that's what I was going to do, that I was just going to use what I had learned to serve in my local church, which we loved. We'd live in Chicago, and I would work for this financial advisor. And then the door opened. Honestly, for me to do a PhD, I was not really looking. I thought I need to get another degree, another master's degree if I want to be competitive in a PhD program. And the door just opened and I fell into a PhD at Wheaton and did that in three years. And then found myself teaching at Wheaton for four years in different capacities. It, it was just the Lord's providence of just falling into this stuff. Culminating in that fourth year of teaching at Wheaton where we were looking for something more stable. Um... I was interviewing at places and went off to London and met Dr. Bune. And uh, uh, this place offered me a job. And so we uprooted our family and we moved out to London and we were there for eight years. 
And then the Lord kindly opened a door to move back to the States and closer to family and to work with Dr. Bune. And again, it just, it just sort of, I don't put a lot of stock in reading Providence, but I can't help but looking back retrospectively and thinking the Lord's sort of good hand was just in this along the way. I couldn't see it in the moment, but that's the way that it was. And I think, Savannah, as I look at that in terms of, you know, whatever you want to call it, academics or whatever I've accomplished, I hold that whatever, very lightly. A PhD? I hold that very lightly. I genuinely do. I think, okay, fine. Yeah, I have a PhD. Um, yeah, fine. I, I have the privilege of teaching students. I have the privilege of sort of scratching itches and writing stuff. But like, that's not my identity. You know, I, I don't, I'm not so wrapped up in that stuff where I feel like if I don't write this or if I don't get a good eval for that, you, you fill in the blank. Like that, I hold that stuff very, very lightly. And so a large part of that is my background where it's, uh, I can't believe where I am today, genuinely. And in the light of that, I just think, great, let's just ride it out. Let's see what happens. And I don't hold to that, that stuff is maybe as tightly as other people do. So. You and Dr. Bean both don't really put your accomplishments on the wall. And I asked you why, and that's like a, a London thing. Yeah, it's an English thing. It's a very English thing. Um, <laughs> well, I learned this very quickly in the UK. There's one of these things, again, I had mentioned earlier, uh, if you were called doctor, you were, they were kind of having a go at you. you know, it, it, they were poking at you. Um, it was fascinating to me to see, especially the Oxbridge boys, the guys, that, um, the guys or girls that had graduated from Oxford or Cambridge, that had then come to train at the seminary where Dr. Bean and I had taught, that um, their degree from Oxford or Cambridge would be hung up in the house but it was hung up in the bathroom. That was the only sort of appropriate place to put it. Because you didn't want to be too forward. You, you could never be too forward with that kind of stuff. You don't sort of put it out in the open. Or if you went to speak at a church, they wouldn't read out your CV before you taught, as if that was the basis of your authority of, or the reason why you were a legitimate speaker. But it was, uh, here's Chris, and he's going to speak to us about the Bible. I just really appreciated that. And so I've come so accustomed to that, you know, that to be called doctor is still a very strange thing to yeah. me. And to hang a sort of a degree in the yeah. office is a strange thing. Odd. Yeah. Um, any other questions for Chris? Yeah, Abby. Yeah, uh, what kind of advice or words of Christian who is struggling with addiction, who like, seems to genuinely mourn their sin and like, pray for change, but is still stuck in that cycle? Because it's like a different experience than what you had. No, sure. Um, I think the most significant piece of advice that I could give to that sort of person is um, a vulnerability, a transparency, and an honesty and accountability with other people. Where at least having one or two people 
that they are constantly accountable to, and one or two people um, that they know can at any point of time ask them any question and they need to give an answer to it and not feel offended by it. Any last questions? No? Okay, well, Chris, thank you very much for being here. You are totally awesome, and we're very, very grateful. So thank Pleasure. you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. so much for listening and a big thank you to chris ansbury for sharing his story with us we'll be back soon for part 14 see you then